Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I want to begin by sharing what I think is probably my favorite love song. I think most of us probably have a, a favorite love song or two. Uh, one of mine is by Bob Dylan, and he wrote this song called Make You Feel My Love. And I just want to share a couple of verses of it. He says, when the rain is blowing in your face and the whole world is on your case, I could offer you a warm embrace to make you feel my love. When the evening shadows and the stars appear and there is no one there to dry your tears, I could hold you for a million years to make you feel my love. Here's the last verse. I could make you happy, make your dreams come true. There's nothing that I wouldn't do Go to the ends of the earth for you to make you feel my love. Like, that's beautiful, right? It is. I know that that's not, it's not a Christian song. Um, but at the same time, I've come along, uh, or I've come across a lot of Christian art and music and teaching about love that actually doesn't sound super loving. Not long ago, I came across this, uh, this sermon by, uh, a pastor who I have a great deal of respect for, John Piper. And in this message, he preached, God hates, now here's the paradox, and God loves at the same time. Hate and love are simultaneous as God looks upon hateful, rebellious, corrupt, loathsome, wicked, God-dishonoring sinners. If we don't understand that God finds us hateful and loathsome in our ugly sin, we won't be as stunned by what his love is for us. So another theologian, Don Carson, he literally like wrote the book on God's love. And in that book, he says, your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But God says, I love you anyway, not because you are attractive, but because it is my nature to love. I have set my affection on you from before the foundation of the universe, not because you are wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace, I chose to love you. Now, I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you're tracking with that, but do you hear, you have teachers who, in order to help us understand God's love, are using words like hateful and corrupt and loathsome and disgustingly ugly in order to describe the people who are the object of that love. Now, my hunch is that that's not just talk. Like, those aren't just ideas. That's not just at the level of doctrine. I'm actually pretty sure that what we think about God's love, what we believe about God's love, that shapes how we live and how we treat each other. Like, if we could feel the one, if we could feel God's love, we would do the other and love one another. Another way of saying it, like, to the degree that God's love for us has sunk in, like, has sunk all the way in, to that degree... We are able to love our neighbor and we're able to love ourselves. Now today, as we uh, continue through this study that we've been on of 1 Corinthians, and there's only a couple of weeks left, we come to this passage that is super famous. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13 is, is super famous. And, and we might not realize, because of how famous it is, that this part of the letter is where Paul is getting kind of desperate, and, and he's looking at this church where half the people can't stand the other half and there is competition and division and there is 
judgment and greed and selfishness. And he wants to unite them. He wants to help them to live and practice the way of Jesus and have proper like table manners for each other. And, and you might wonder like, well, what, what's his strategy for this? Like, what's he going to do at this point? Uh, after he's talked about spiritual gifts and the ways that those spiritual gifts have actually divided the church rather than uniting them. So what's he going to do? Is he going to threaten them? Is he going to yell at them to, to you know, smarten up and get their acts together? What would you do? Would you do the same? Would you, maybe, would you, would we like leave it alone and hope somebody else comes along and, and solves it for us? Well, Paul's strategy is really, really cool. He shares a love song. He shares a love song. That's that's what this is. Chapter 13 is a love song, and it's actually super important. And and we face a danger today as we as we sort of embark on this study together. Because we've seen 1 Corinthians 13 on coffee mugs and on posters and bookmarks, and like we've seen it embroidered and on you know needlepoint and stuff. And we've heard it read at weddings, which we should do because it's that good and it's that important. But because because of that, some of us probably feel like we've heard it all before and there's nothing more that we can learn about God's love. And I want you to know that would be a profound mistake. And what we need and what Paul delivers this morning is a theology of love. Right? It's a theology of love. And I'm, I'm persuaded this is a game changer. It's a game changer. So I hope you'll come along with me for the ride here. To begin, I think we need to define what Paul means by love, okay? Because in your English New Testament, when you come across the word love, that might be one of four different ideas or four different unique concepts. And each has their own sort of nuance. But in English, each one of these four things is translated as love. So check it out. Here they are. The first one is eros. And this kind of love is is a passionate, romantic, uh, erotic love between lovers. And the 12-year-old in me wants to say all kinds of, you know, funny, rude things, but I'm not going to because we've got kids on the call. Uh, I'll just say that Eros is the kind of love that we see demonstrated in the the book uh, Song of Songs, okay? Another kind of love we see in scripture is Philea, okay? Philea. This is a a brotherly love. It's like a deep sibling love between friends, like at the soul level. And so in, uh, in John 11... This is the love that Jesus has for Lazarus, okay? And another kind is storge. Storge. This is a kind of love that is shared among, like, people within a family group or, a, or in, a, in a small, tight-knit community where there's affection and there's unity. That's storge. And then the fourth, which you might have heard of, is, is agape. Agape. This is a generous, self-sacrificial love. So in John 3.16, we read that God so agaped the world. And in Ephesians 5, it, Jesus agaped the church and gave himself for her. And when Jesus in, in John 13 gave the disciples a new command, he says, As I have agaped you, so you must agape one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you agape one another. And as we come to 1 Corinthians 13, this is the kind of love Paul's talking about. This is a love song about agape, and he calls it the most excellent way. 
He says, I want to show you the most excellent way. And there's a few points that he wants to, to make. So I'm going to share three points and a problem in order for us to make sense of this, okay? The first point is that love is a thing to have, okay? Love is a thing that we have. So Paul begins with this list of some pretty cool things that happen if these Corinthians have agape. Like, uh, verse, verse 1, like, congratulations, you can speak in the tongues of men and angels. You can have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and you can have a faith that can move mountains. Awesome. And verse 3, you can give all that you have to the poor, and you can give up your body, and, and that's all amazing. And it is possible for all of these things to happen without love. And Paul's like, what would be the point of that? If I do all of these things without love, I verse 3, I gain nothing. Verse 2, I am nothing. And verse 1, whatever I say is noise. Like it, it's, it's a resounding gong. He says in, he's in verse 1, if I, if I do all these things and I don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I have a clanging cymbal with me. I just want to demonstrate what this is like. I want you to imagine. Imagine trying to listen to a teacher whose lessons... He's trying to talk through this noise. That sounds great, right? Would that be easy to listen to? It's like maybe the, maybe the teacher has some really great things to say, but it's just noise without love. So it doesn't matter how much like skill you've got, or how much character and chemistry you've got. If it, if, even if you, do, you can do all kinds of great tricks, you've got amazing powers, if you don't have love... None of it matters. So love is a thing to have. Second thing Paul wants us to know about, about love is that it's, it's a thing that does stuff. All right? I know that sounds a little strange to say, but love is a thing that does stuff. So I want you to come with me through this section, and, and I want to go one by one because it's really important that we can see with our own eyes what love does. So verse 4, love is patient. Like, is you study what the words that Paul uses, what they actually mean, it's, it's like he's saying love is persistent. It's long-suffering because it's patient. And uh, love shows mercy and, and goodness. It's, it shows like benevolence because love is kind. And love doesn't covet. It doesn't get jealous because love doesn't envy. Love doesn't brag. Love doesn't put others down because love doesn't boast. Love doesn't need praise. Love doesn't need to be adored. Because love isn't proud. Verse 5, Paul said, Paul's like, you know, love doesn't embarrass others. It doesn't shame people because love does not dishonor others. And it's not self-seeking. Like, there is no consumerism in love because love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't take revenge. Love, isn't, love doesn't throw tantrums because love is not easily angered. And, and love doesn't cancel. Love forgives and restores because love keeps no record of wrongs. In verse 6, Paul's like, love doesn't delight in evil. Like it doesn't, it doesn't ignore suffering. It's not indifferent to people's suffering or injustice because it doesn't, doesn't delight in evil. And it doesn't do cover-ups. Love does not do cover-ups and, you know, put the institution before the people because love rejoices with the truth. 
He goes on, verse 7, love sides with the weak. Those who have been excluded and people who have been marginalized because love always protects. Think of that. Love always protects and love always trusts. It's not cynical. It's not skeptical. And, and it always hopes. It always hopes. Love doesn't turn its back uh, on people. It doesn't turn its back on anybody because it, it hopes. And love never stops loving. Love never stops loving because, Paul says, it always perseveres. Now, I know that took a minute, but that was, that's, it's important because that's a great list. And before we leave this, we need to do a quick grammar lesson in order to really get this, okay? When you learn a language, there are three main parts of speech. There's verbs and nouns and adjectives. Now, a verb is an action word. You know that. A, a noun, I think you'd know, is a person, a place, or a thing. And an adjective describes stuff. So each of these has its own job. And they behave like according to their, those rules. But it doesn't in Greek, in which Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in. So like, for example, in English, we say, Heather Molesky is patient. So Heather Molesky, noun, is, verb, patient, adjective. What we don't say is that Heather patiences. Like, that doesn't make sense. You can't, you can't treat an adjective like a verb, except that's how Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's got agape with a whole bunch of verbs after, not adjectives. And now you're like, who cares? Why does that even matter? It matters because love, love does stuff. Love patiences. Love kindnesses. Love unprides, love unangers, love does all these things and gets all these things done. It's almost like love isn't a thing at all. We'll come back to that. But uh, Paul has a third point about love. Paul's third point is that love is the best of all things. It's the best of all things. At the bottom of it all, like the last thing in Paul's list is love never fails. It never fails. And he spends this next chunk explaining what that means. And he takes us into the future to a time when everything else fails, but love doesn't. Like where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there's tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. Verse 9, for we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the completeness comes, what's in part will disappear. Verse 11, when I was a child... I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, Paul says. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And I I hope what you see here is love is going to outlast everything. Love will outlast everything. Like, Everything else is going to be obsolete and love will never be obsolete. Someday we will know the things that we don't know. We will fully know and fully understand. We will be fully mature. We will see things clearly. We don't right now. And so in the meantime, these, these Corinthians, they're like, they're like children, uninformed and immature and squabbling and fighting when if they had the knowledge and if they had the maturity that Paul's talking about, they would love each other. And that's what he wants for them. And so Paul in verse 13, he says, and now these three things remain, faith, 
hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's the greatest thing of all. Like, it's the greatest thing. When we, when we see the Lord someday, like when we can see him face to face, we will not need faith, but we will have love. And when we are with the Lord, when we're with him, uh, like side by side, we will no longer need hope. Hope will be obsolete, but we will still have love. Love never fails. Love lasts forever. Love is the greatest thing. And, and that's why he calls it like the most excellent way. Now, that would be a great place to stop. Except we have a problem, okay? The problem is that we can't have anything but God as the greatest thing. Like, how can the way, how can the way of love and not the way of Jesus be the most excellent way? Like, maybe that's not hitting you, but I, I guarantee you people in Paul's audience would have been like, this is a problem. Now, come back with me a minute, because in part one, we saw that without love, you ha- we have nothing, we are nothing, we gain nothing. And I know that because you are all keen theologians, you hear that and you go, wait a minute, that can't be biblical, because anything that's that important in our lives must be an idol. And you'd be right, except this is Paul talking in the Bible, and it sounds like he's making too much of love. And in part two, we saw that love does things. Love is the doer and the mover and it makes stuff happen. Well, and, but you're like, how can that be? Love can't do stuff. Only a living thing can do stuff. And in part three, Paul said that love is the greatest thing. Except we hear that and we're like, wait a minute. Love can't be the greatest thing because God is the greatest thing. You can't have two greatest things. And it seems to me, Paul has like put love in the place of God and said, follow love, imitate love, like orient your whole life around love. In other words, Paul is a heretic. Paul is committing blasphemy unless, unless he knows and unless the reader knows that God is love, that God and love are not rivals. Listen to what what the Apostle John said in 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Christianity says love is not a thing. Love is a person. God is love. It's not just a thing that we have. It's not just a thing that does stuff. It's not just the greatest thing God says, I am love. I am love. I am pure love. And it's me who defines what love is and what love isn't. And that's why you can go back into 1 Corinthians 13 and see all the things that Paul says about love. And you replace that word love with God. And it makes perfect sense. If I do not have God, I gain nothing. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil. But God rejoices with the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God 
never fails. That's beautiful, right? Like that's a beautiful love song. And and here's why this matters. Here's why this matters. At this point in my life and at this point in my ministry, I have come to believe that most people have no problem believing that God can't stand us. Like that is not a problem for people to understand or to believe. We, we believe, we understand that God is holy and we are mainly sinful and God is, is repulsed by us. He finds us revolting and disgustingly ugly. Okay? And the rules say that God has to forgive you if you believe in Jesus. And so it's almost like, in some circles of church world, it's almost like the good news is that Jesus died in order to change God's mind about you. Like Jesus died in order to force God to forgive you. Now, of course, that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And I also know there is, of course, there's a risk in what I'm talking about here. Some people, some theologians who who might get really kind of worked up and go, you know, wait a minute. What if people start to think too highly of themselves? What if people start to forget how sinful they really are? And I just want you to know, in my experience, like that is not a thing. Like not, not, that's not really a thing. Like not in this culture. Maybe it was once. But it seems to me our culture has thoroughly absorbed the idea that God can't stand the world and neither can his people. Okay? If you are someone who survived like trauma in your childhood, if you were taught certain brands of like manhood and womanhood, or if you're a person who suffered and you went through hard things like most of us, you actually have no problem believing that God can't stand you. You assume it. It just, it make, the world makes sense through that lens. It's, a, it's an idea that we adopted a long time ago. And some of you know exactly what I mean. You, you, you survived hard things by telling yourself it was your fault. You deserved it. Horrible things happen to horrible people. And so that must be what I am. And if that's true, then God is under no obligation to help us. God is under no obligation to love us. Why would he? And that is not Christianity. That is not, that is not God. That's a distortion. That's a distortion. That God is not patient or kind. That God, in fact, does envy and does boast. That God, that version of God is proud. He uh, has no problem dishonoring others, actually. He's actually quite self-seeking. He's actually quite easily angered. And he does keep record of wrongs. And you could go on and on and on. In other words, friends, what I'm saying here is that lots of us have come to believe in a version of God who doesn't even meet his own definition of love. Let me say that again. I'm concerned that a lot of people are running around with a version of God that doesn't even meet his own definition of love. And if that's, if that's how we think of God, like, how's that going for us? Like, how, how's our worship life? How's, our, how's sharing our faith going? How's the reading of his word going for us? How's our, how's our prayer life? Talking to a God who we believe deep down can't stand us. And like, that's not who God is. That is not the God and Father of Jesus. And so I want to say a word to our kids, okay? Kids who are listening. 
as you grow up, you're going to make some mistakes and do some stuff that you wish you hadn't. Okay. And you're going to wonder if you've done something that is so awful that God is going to stop loving you. And I want you to know, God will never stop loving you. God will never stop loving you. He loves you and he likes you. And Jesus has shown us. All right. Jesus has shown us. Even if you do something or say something that's really bad, and even if people can't figure out how to love you, even if people forget how to love you, God will never forget how to love you. Okay. He can't because God is pure love. No buts, no excuses, no paradoxes, no angry God theology. God is pure love. Someone who's been super helpful for me on this is a Canadian theologian. His name's Bradley Jersak. He says, if you want to see the nature of God in clearest focus, look to the cross. The cross shows us the nature of God, that God is love. What is God's love? It is God's self-giving, radically forgiving, sacrificial love. That's what cruciform or cross-shaped love looks like. That is the essential nature of God revealed in Christ. It seems to me, chapter 13 is a love song that God sings over his people. And if if this really connects for us, I think think three things are going to happen. I can imagine three things happening if this really connects at the soul level, at the heart level. If If this penetrates all the way down, I think one thing that happens is we might put down whatever isn't love. I think we would find that we'd be able to put down whatever is not love. Because there are some bad ideas about God that some of us are carrying around that need to be put down once and for all, never picked back up. I don't know where we learned these, but it wasn't from reading the Bible as Jesus did. And Could you just imagine your life if you could put these bad ideas down? I'm not saying that that's easy. Because you probably heard these all your life. And I think it can feel disorienting to put these down. It can be disorienting to relearn something like God's love. Especially if you grew up on a, like a steady diet of angry God theology. In fact, I would go a step further. Putting it down is going to feel like a death. It's going to feel like a death. But after, there is resurrection. It, it seems to me that... You know, anything good in the Christian life only comes after resurrection. And I pray that for us. What if we could put down whatever is not love? Another thing that happens, I think, is we would feel God's love. I think that we'd be able to feel God's love. Once you see Jesus relating to individual saints and sinners in love, once you see Jesus dying on the cross for you as the essence of what God's love looks like, that's when you can feel loved by God. I'm persuaded that's when you can feel loved by God. Uh, and I want to say, I know, that, I know that feelings aren't everything, all right? I know that feelings aren't everything, but they are something. Feelings are something. Imagine, imagine your life with nothing to prove anymore. Imagine no one to hate anymore. And nothing to fear anymore because God's perfect love casts out fear. So, like, how might it look for us if we could feel God's love? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being deeply persuaded and knowing and feeling God's love? I pray that for us. 
I pray that for us. And I think that the third thing happens. God's love would transform how we love others. If you're a person who has said no to whatever isn't love, if you said yes to God's love, then you know what that means? That means you're on the team. It means you're you're a follower of Jesus. You are part of this mission. You're part of this movement. And once we have seen and experienced how God's love is poured out on undeserving people, we can't possibly treat other undeserving people any differently. It's not like he can love them, but we're above that. Of course we will love them. So come back to Corinth with me for a minute. Because I just, I imagine that after hearing this part of the letter, if it really clicks, you know, if it really connects with these Corinthian believers, I, I think they're, you know, confused and they're excited and they're just like stoked to figure out what it looks like now for us to love one another as God has loved us. And, and I imagine like somebody's saying, wow, God is patient and kind. Well, we can do that. We can be patient and kind. And somebody's saying, wow, God always protects. Well, we can do that. And, and somebody's saying, God keeps no record of wrongs. Well, we can do that. We're, we're done judging. And, and somebody says, God always hopes and perseveres. Well, we can do that too. We can make room at our table for, for those who've been told all their lives that they're just corrupt and hateful and disgustingly ugly. We can do that. And, and can you imagine if we did? Could you, could you imagine that? I just, I hope that you can. I, I hope that you can imagine this because you know why? Because, because a lot of churches are full of a lot of people who can't imagine that this is true. Okay? A lot of churches are full of a lot of people who can't imagine that God loves us like this. And, and they can't, and, and many of our neighbors can't either. They just can't. The, this, this, like, angry God theology, this is, this is all we've come to know and expect, and it's all that our neighbors have, have come to know and expect. But God has shown us how he feels about us. And he's done all these things. He's loved us in all these ways and 10,000 other ways to make us feel his love. His love really is the most excellent way. Amen. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.